Chapter Twenty of Four Girls at Chautauqua. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Four Girls at Chautauqua by Pansy. Chapter Twenty. People who, having eyes, see not. Girls said Eurie as she munched a doughnut which she had brought from the lunch table with her and lounged on a camp chair waiting for the afternoon service. Do you know that Flossy taught a class in Sunday school this morning? Taught a class. Repeated both Marion and Ruth in one voice and with about equal degrees of amazement. She did as true as the world. That is, she must have been teaching. The way of it was this: I went to see the little midgets exhibit themselves, and when I came out of the tent and walked over toward the stand, there sat Flossy on that old stump just back of the stand, and before her were two of the roughest-looking boys that ever emerged from the backwoods. They were ragged and dirty and wild. And as wicked little imps as one could find, I am sure. Flossy was talking to them and had a large Bible in her lap and one of those lesson leaves that they flutter about here so much. And well, altogether, it was an amazing sight. She was certainly talking to them with all her might, and they were listening. And it is my opinion that she was trying to play Sunday school teacher and give them a lesson. You know, she is an imitative little sheep and always was. Nonsense. Ruth said, and she seemed to speak more sharply than the occasion warranted. Just as if Flossy Shipley couldn't have anything to say to two boys, but what she found in the Bible. Little she knows what is in it, for that matter. I suppose she wandered out that way because she did not know what else to do with herself, and talked to the boys by way of amusement. She has often amused herself in that way, I am sure. Oh yes, but these specimens were rather too youthful and dirty for that sort of amusement, and she had a Bible in her lap. What of that? Bibles are as common as leaves here. I found two lying on the seat which I took this morning. People seem to think the art of stealing has not found its way here. Flossy is changed," interrupted Marian. "The mouse is certainly different from what I ever saw her before. She seems so quiet and self-sustained." I thought she was bored. Why, I expected her to hail a trip to her dear Saratoga with absolute delight. She belongs to just the class of people who would find the intellectual element here too strong for her, and would have to flutter off in that direction in self-defense. Ruthie, you have the temper of an angel not to fly out at me for bringing in Saratoga every few minutes. It isn't with malice aforethought, I assure you. I forget your projected scheme whenever I speak of it. But you must allow me to be astonished over Flossy's refusal to go with you. Something has come over the mousey that is not explainable by any of the laws of science with which I am acquainted. Don't trouble yourself to apologize, I beg. I hope you do not think I am so foolish as to care anything about your hints as to Saratoga. Of course, I recognize my right in this world to be governed by my own tastes and inclinations. I have enjoyed that privilege too long to be disturbed by trifles. This from Ruth, but I shall have to admit that it was very stiffly spoken, and if she had but known it, indicated that she did care a great deal. In truth, she was very sore over her position and her plans. She who had prided herself on her intellectuality bored to the very point of leaving, and Flossy, who had been remarkable for nothing but flutter and fashion. Actually, so interested that she could not be coaxed into going away. What was it that interested her? That was the question which interested and puzzled Ruth. 
she studied over it during all the time that Marion and Eurie were chatting about the morning service. Flossy was different, there was no shutting one's eyes to that fact. The truth was that she had suddenly seemed to have little in common with her own party. She certainly said little to them, she made no complaints as to inconveniences, even when they amounted to positive annoyances with the rest of the party. She had given up afternoon toilets altogether, and in fact the subject of dress seemed to be one that had suddenly sunken into such insignificance as to cease to claim her thoughts at all. Grave changes these to be found in Flossie Shipley. Then, too, she had taken to wandering away alone in the twilight. During the short spaces between services she was nowhere to be found, but the Chautauqua bell brought her back invariably in time to make ready for the next service. There is certainly more to the little mouse than I ever expected before. If Chautauqua wakes our wits as it has Flossie's, we shall have reason to bless the day that Dr. Vincent invented it. This Ruth heard from Marion as she roused herself from her reverie to give attention to what the girls were saying. They had got back to a discussion of Flossie again. It was a subject that some way annoyed Ruth, so she dismissed it and made ready for the afternoon meeting, whither they all went. To Marion, the morning sermon had been an intellectual treat. She had a way of listening to sermons that would have been very disheartening to the preacher if he had known of it. She had learned how to divest herself of all personality. The subject was one that had nothing to do with her. The application of solemn truths were for the people around her who believed in these things, but never for her. So she listened and enjoyed, just as she enjoyed a book or a picture, just as if she had no soul at all, nothing but an intellect. It was very rare indeed that an arrow from anyone's quiver touched her but there was one single sentence in Dr. Pierce's sermon that was destined to haunt her. Said he, When the blind man was questioned, he couldn't argue, he didn't try to, but he could stand up there before them and say, Whereas I was blind, now I see, make the most of that. And wasn't it an unanswerable argument? There is no argument like it. When men are honest and earnest and spiritual in Wall Street, it tells. Now that was just the kind of sentence to delight Marion's heart. The inconsistencies of Christians was one of her very strong points. She saw them bristling out everywhere, and she looked about her with a satisfied smile on her face that so large a company of them were getting so sharp a thrust as this. And suddenly there flashed across her brain an utterly new thought. Whereas I was blind, now I see. Perhaps, she said to herself, perhaps I am blind. What if that should be the only reason why these things are not to me as they are to others? How do I know, after all, but there may really be a spiritual blindness, and that it may be holding me? How do I know but that the reason some of these poor ignorant people whom I meet are so firm in their belief of Christ and heaven is because they have had just this experience? Whereas I was blind, now I see. How can I possibly tell but that this may be the case? I wonder what I do think, anyway. Do I really think that all these men gathered here are either deceived or deceivers? One or the other they must be, and either position is too silly to sustain, or else I must be blind. If there should be such a thing as seeing, and I discover it too late, if there is a too late to this thing, and I do not find it out simply because I am blind, what then? 
The sun shines, of course, though I dare say an entirely blind man doesn't believe it. Doesn't have an idea anyway what it is. How can he? Over and over did she revolve this sentence and look at it from every attainable standpoint. No use to try to shut it off, back it came. All the clatter with which she had amused herself during the interval between meetings had not banished it. No sooner was she seated under those trees waiting for the afternoon service than the thought presented itself for her to consider. I wonder if there are different degrees of moral blindness, she said suddenly. People who can see just enough to enable them to keep constantly going the wrong way, so that they are no better off than the blind, except that they admit that there is such a thing as seeing. The thing is possible, I suppose. Ruth turned and looked at her wonderingly. What are you talking about? she asked at last. I'm moralizing, Marion said, laughing. You yourself suggested that train of thought. I was wondering which of us was right in our notions, you or I, and, for all practical purposes, what difference it made. You are too high up for me to follow. I haven't the least idea what you mean. Why, I tell you, I was contrasting our conditions. Let me see if I have a right view of them. Don't you honestly think that there is a God, and a heaven, and a hell, and that to escape the one place and secure the other, certain efforts upon your part are necessary? Why, of course I think so. I have never made any pretense of disbelieving all these things. I think it is foolish to do so. Exactly. Now for one question more. Have you made the effort that you believe to be necessary? Have you been hired as an exhorter? Ruth said, trying to laugh. Why, no, I cannot say that I have. Well, then, suppose you and I should both die tonight. I don't believe any of these things. You do, but you don't practice on your belief. Then, according to your own view, you will be lost forever. And, according to that same view, so shall I. Now, practically, what difference is there between us? So, if it is really blindness, why may not one be totally blind as well as to have a little sight that keeps one all the time in the wrong way? I dare say we are quite as well off, Ruth said composedly. Only I think there is a point of difference between us. I think your position is silly. I don't see how anyone who has studied Pally and Butler, and in fact any of the sciences, can think so foolish a thing as you pretend to. One doesn't like to be foolish, even if one doesn't happen to be a Christian. Foolish? Marion repeated, and there was a fine glow on her face. Don't you go and talk anything so wild as that. If there is any class of people in this world who profess to be simpletons and act up to their professions, it is you people who believe everything and do nothing. Now just look at the thing for a minute. Suppose you say, There is a precipice over there, and every whiff of wind blows us nearer to it. We will surely go over if we sit here. We ought to go up on that hill. I know that is a safe place and yet you sit perfectly still. And suppose I say, I don't believe there is any such thing as a precipice, and I believe this is just as safe a place as there is anywhere, and I sit still. Now I should like to know which of us was acting the sillier. You would be, Ruth said stoutly, if you persisted in disbelieving what could be proved to you so clearly that no person with common sense would think of denying it. Humph! said Marion, settling back. In that case, I think there would be very little chance for each to accuse the other of folly. 
Only I confess to you just this, Ruth Erskine, if you could prove to me that there was a precipice over there, and that we were being carried toward it, and that the hill was safe, I know in my very soul that I should get up and go to that hill. I would not be such a fool as to delay, I know I wouldn't. You are frank, Ruth said, and her face was flushed. I am sure I don't see why you don't make the attempt and decide for yourself if you feel this thing so deeply. I think there ought to be a prayer meeting on your account. If I knew Dr. Vincent, I would try to have this thing turned into a regular camp meeting time. Then you would doubtless get all the help you need. Marion laughed good-humoredly. Don't waste your sarcasm on me, she said cheerily. Keep your weapons for more impressible subjects. You know I am not in the least afraid of any such arguments. I have been talking downright truth and common sense, and you know it, and are hit. That is what makes you sarcastic. Did you know that was at the bottom of most sarcasm, my dear? Do hush, please. These people before us are trying hard to hear what the speaker is saying. This was Ruth's answer, but she had had her sermon, and of all the preachers at Chautauqua, the one who had preached to her was Marion Wilbur, the infidel schoolteacher. It was her use of Dr. Pierce's arrow that had thrust Ruth. She gave herself up to the thought of it all during that wonderful afternoon meeting. Very little did she hear of the speeches, save now and then a sentence more vivid than the rest. Her brain was busy with new thoughts. Was it all so very queer? Did it look to others than Marion a strange way to live? Did she actually believe these things for which she had been contending? If she did, was she in very deed an idiot? It actually began to look as though she might be. She was not wild like Yuri, nor intense and emotional like Marion. She was still and cold, and in her way slow, given to weighing thoughts, and acting calmly from decisions rather than from impulse. It struck her oddly enough now, that, having so stoutly defended the cardinal doctrines of Christian faith, she should have no weapons except sarcasm with which to meet a bold appeal to her inconsistency. When I get home from Saratoga, she said at last, turning uneasily in her seat, annoyed at the persistency of her thoughts, I really mean to look into this thing. I am not sure but a sense of propriety should lead one to make a profession of religion. It is, as Marion says, strange to believe as we do, and not indicated by our professions. I am not sure but the right thing for me to do would be to unite with the church. There is certainly some ground for the thrusts that Marion has been giving. My position must seem inconsistent to her. I certainly believe these things. What harm in my saying so to everybody? Rather, is it not the right thing to do? I will unite with the church from a sense of duty, not because my feelings happen to be wrought upon by some strong excitement. I wonder just what is required of people when they join the church. A sense of their own dependence on Christ for salvation, I suppose. I certainly feel that. I am not an unbeliever in any sense of the word. I respect Christian people, and always did. Mother used to be a church member. I suppose she would be now if she were not an invalid. Most of the married ladies in our set are church members. I don't see why it isn't quite as proper for young ladies to be. I certainly mean to give some attention to this matter just as soon as the season is over at Saratoga. In the meantime, I wonder when there is a train I can get, and if I couldn't telegraph to mother to send my trunks on and have them there when I arrived. 
End of chapter 20. Recording by Tricia G.